Hey Rewatchers, Keith here. We are nearing the completion of our Highlander Worldwide coverage just in time for the one-year anniversary of the convention last October. We hope you enjoy this interview with Highlander, the Search for Vengeance producer, Joe Pearson, in another video podcast. We highly recommend you check out the video on our Facebook page. Since Joe is an animator, the video is chock full of clips from his amazing animation career. We hope you tune into this episode to learn how animated mullets crept their way into Highlander, the lightning-fast turnaround for making a Pearl Jam music video with Spawn creator Todd McFarlane, and how the wildly complex American tale of John Brown might translate to anime. Enjoy the show! So uh, here we are at day one of the Highlander Worldwide Convention, and uh, we have a special guest here to talk to us, uh, Joe Pearson. Joe, how are you? I'm good, guys. I really enjoyed the panel that I just did with David on Highlander, Search for Vengeance, and War of the Worlds. It, it's really uh, a good feeling to be back with the Highlander audience. I was at a convention about uh, 10 years ago, a gathering, right when we were kicking off War of the Worlds. And that's when I really first kind of had a, an experience with the Highlander family. It was, a, it was really nice. It's really nice to see the community and the love in the community. So how did you first become involved in that project? What was your first introduction to this weird community of Highlander that we all enjoy? Oh, well, it's a long story. I was business partners with Kevin Eastman, the creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And we were trying to raise money to do a slate of direct-to-video animated films. War of the Worlds, Goliath was one of those films. But we had a, a whole slate of them, and we had hooked in with these producers at Imaji, which was a new entertainment company funded by the son of a Hong Kong Christmas tree billionaire. And uh, he... Did you say Christmas tree billionaire? <laughs> yeah, his dad made all the artificial Christmas trees that flooded the world market and, and literally became a billionaire. So... His son Francis, who was about 30 years old, was given the control of a of a new entertainment company because of that Christmas tree money. <laughs> Got to get that Christmas tree money. <laughs> I missed out on mine, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was your initial introduction that led you to. What, what was the the nexus between that and then meeting up with Highlander? Like I said it's a bit of a long story, but basically they were looking for projects to do with Kevin Eastman and I, and I had written uh, with Kevin Altieri, the Batman director, a uh, a treatment for an anime crow movie. Uh, it would have been the, would, the James Barr. Yeah, the, comic? yeah, yeah. It was a sequel to the first film where uh, the character comes back from the dead after a year. All of his old enemies are now anime-like demons haunting Detroit. His Shelley's been taken from heaven to hell by the devil, so Eric has to man up, actually go to hell, and uh, fight the test of love and hate to get Shelley out. It would have been a, a really good film, and, and uh, that Imagi guys paid uh, a Madhouse Studios to, to do a 30-second trailer, which was brilliant, but in the end, at Pressman, there were complicated issues on, on, on ownership rights, and he, he passed. So the, so Kevin and I thought, well, that's it for Amaji. And then the Amaji guy said, hey, look, we can't do The Crow, but we could do Highlander. We, we met Peter and, and, and uh, Bill. They really want to do a deal, and we'll keep you guys on board as producers, which was really, really good. So that's how I came to meet David and, and the initial Highlander uh, fandom. So, 
Oh, God. No, I was just going to say, can we see, is, is that Crow trailer online anywhere? Or that teaser? Is there, is there any way to find any of the stills or anything from that? It no, it's not. Unfortunately, we did not. Well, we did not leave it with Ed Pressman because we knew Ed would have just taken it and run with it to try to shop his own deal. And uh, <laughs> it, it was a really nice trailer. And the funny thing was, it was supposed to have been done by Kawajiri, but it's actually Rentaro stepped up and did it. Wow! It, it's a cool trailer. It's just basically a gothic, you know, Rentaro-like anime cityscape of Detroit. And you zoom in from a long shot all the way onto the crow who's standing on top of a pinnacle. And he's standing there looking really cool. And then he bursts into a cloud of crows and, like, dissipates. That it, sounds it, awesome. And Rick, awesome. Yeah, I, I'd watch that movie. <laughs> it would have been a great movie, man. It, it, at the end, people would have been crying. We, we have Eric in limbo after rescuing Shelley. And, and he says, so, so now we can be together. And, and she says, you know, you're not really ready yet for... Um, heaven but i will see you soon right and then he's in limbo in a gray field and a guitar like appears in his lap and he says you know thank you and starts to play uh, wish you were here oh. and that would have been our end credit which yeah. yeah that would have been awesome oh, hang on a second Rintaro, that's he he directed like Armageddon, right that, yeah that's, and, and, and uh, demon city tokyo yeah. Oh, Doom Megapolis. Doom Megalopolis. Yeah. Megalopolis. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. He's he's a cool cool anime director. He's a great dude. director. Yeah. 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 But yeah. Karajiri's awesome too. Karajiri. People here probably know him most from like Wicked City or Demon City Shinjuku. And, I would um, guess. Yeah, he did a Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. Right. I I know that one. Yeah. <laughs> Ninja Scroll. Ninja Scroll. That's a favorite. He did a really nice anime piece in the Animatrix. With the samurais. Oh, that's a good one. Where the where he breaks the sword in half at the end. That's a cool, that's a cool segment. Yeah, and it's all '80s hair again. Though his characters yeah. always have that Rod Stewart '80s hair. <laughs> Mullets for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Mullets for everyone. Yeah. So so basically, uh, we I met with David, and Kevin Eastman, and as I discussed in the panel, uh, we brainstormed story ideas, and and Kevin and I really wanted to set it in a different kind of setting that would be appropriate to an anime setting. So we decided to do a post-apocalyptic you know, world like it had been flooded and had issues. And, and uh, to David initially said the villain should be a Kurgan-like character. And, and I thought, I suggested maybe we flip that dynamic and make the Highlander the barbarian and the villain the so-called civilized man, the man of reason, you know, ruthless reason. But... And uh, David jumped on that, and that's when I began to realize how, how collaborative David was and what a, what a good writer he was. And the story is pretty much David's story. The only thing I, I contributed with Kevin was most of the flash, many of the flashback beats I, I threw in, and, and again, David jumped on them. And uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film is the uh, battle over England, on the, or they're dueling on the wing of the bomber over burning Coventry, I think. Yeah. So, in what in what way does the kind of anime style lend itself to Highlander? Was that a natural marrying for the two, or was there kind of a, a tension between this kind of very Scottish original imagery from the, the show and movie and kind of marrying it with that anime style? Well, I, I think there's a natural melding, but you know, I think I think again the the. Japanese stylistic motifs that Kawajiri prefers, like the mullet, 
you know, <laughs> yeah. really undercut the character. I, I mean, I think it would have been nice to have shown him with long, flowing hair. That's how we pictured him, but we could not get him to, to change that dynamic. He definitely has certain, like, flares in all of his movies. Like, in the panel, you mentioned the small person. Like, there's, like, a small old person in every one of his movies who's, like, very mischievous. There was like a guy with like a chainsaw like arm. That was a very cowardly <laughs> yes, thing. Very yeah. yeah, like he loves that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I, I I felt it worked as a Highlander movie and a Kawajiri movie. Kawajiri is one of my favorite directors, so I was like pretty psyched. Yeah, I think I think it worked out. out really well. I mean, yeah. it's 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 story wise, it's more linear than anything he's done. You know, yeah. and and I know David felt like he diverged a lot from the original script, but I thought at the end of the day it, it was it was like eighty five percent of what David wrote. And and the things like the giant crocodile, that was Kawajiri, the you know, some odd things like that were his uh, the chainsaw arm guy was yeah. Kawajiri. But 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 I, I thought it worked really really well in the end. And and uh the ironic thing was, is I never met Kawajiri. I was hired to kind of wrangle the Japanese in, in, in the first initial run. Kevin Eastman and I and Galen Walker, who was the main producer at Amaji, we went out to Tokyo for a preset meeting with Kawajiri to start the whole process. We fly out there. It's a nine-hour flight. It's a long flight. We get settled in. The next day, we're at Madhouse Studios, and it's, it's empty. There's, like, there's no one there. And there's Maruyama, who's the producer David mentioned. He, he's always barefoot, and he's very low-key and casual, but he runs Madhouse with an iron fist. And apparently he's a good cook, although I've never had his, his cuisine. But, but th he was there. There was no Kawajiri, and we, we get into a meeting, and, and we're like, so we're here to meet Kawajiri. Where's Kawajiri? And they're like, well, I'm sorry, but Kawajiri had to go out of town for the week. He's overseas. Oh, good. And we're like, oh, really? Well, we, you know, we set this meeting up, and we came out from L.A. to, to meet with Kawajiri, so why isn't he here? And he's like, oh, well, we're so sorry. It was unavoidable. He couldn't make the meeting. And uh, Kevin turned to me and said, well, I guess we go home. And I'm like, dude, we just got to Tokyo. Can we hang for a few days? But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I never went back to Tokyo. Everything else I did on that was long distance with the Madhouse representatives at Panzer Davis Studios when we had roundtable discussions. And, and most of it went smoothly. I mean, there were issues like the boy character of Joe, which I guess David named after me, the, the little black kid <laughs> in there. There was some issues because Madhouse's initial designs for Joe were, were um, unavoidably kind of racist. Right. You know, he looked a little Sambo-like, yeah. to be honest, and and the the, the big lips, and and we explained to them that no, you you can't you can't do that, right? You've got to change his design, and they're like, oh well, well we can't change his design. We've already gone into layout, and I'm like, well, I I, I was a layout artist. I know that's I didn't say it that way, but that's bullshit. Yeah, you, know, you can you're not you haven't animated him. You can change his design, and, and we insist on it. And it it, it actually it was crazy that they went to, tried to go to the wall on this, but in the end of the day. Wow. You know, we comp they we had a very very uh, I think good design, and they wanted something in the middle. So we it was funny because as we changed him, it was almost like watching Michael Jackson go through his changes. You know, from, <laughs> you know. So what we wanted was sort of end game Michael Jackson, but they yeah. they kind of gave us mid Michael Jackson. 
As far that's as Michael Jackson's go, that's not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, think, I think Joe looked okay. Yeah. He, he wasn't cringy. He was just a little cringy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, if you held this, that might be simpler, oh, and he and I can... Oh, yeah. You look very official oh. now, too. Oh, okay. There you go. All right. Yeah. Good thinking. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird thing in Japan with, with designs of characters of color sometimes. They're, they're still a little behind the rest of the world, not to make a broad generalization, but... <laughs> It's a cultural thing, you know. I, I don't think there was any malicious intent on Madhouse's part, but you know, they just thought that that's how black cartoon characters should look. You know. So, if you had had carte blanche on design on the kind of visual style of the thing, what would your vision of it have been? Well, I mean, Kawajiri is unarguably one of the great anime directors and and stylists in the world, and and to think about changing anything by him would be it would seem to be kind of blasphemous. I would just have gotten <laughs> rid of the mullet. You know, yeah. I think Duncan McCloud should have had long black brown hair. Mm -hmm. You know, he should not have had silver, uh, silvery uh, Rod Stewart '80s hair. Yeah. That really, that would have been a, maybe in, in modifying Joe, and and the, the the girl could have kept the mullet. You know, the the silver <laughs> hair, the prostitute. I think she was fine. Uh, you know, I I don't really everything else design wise I thought was pretty good. Yeah. So no mullets for McCloud. Is no. the is the battle cry? Uh, so, what other projects are you working on? Oh, are you trying to yeah, grab so lunch? Yeah, yeah. Uh, David, I could I could pick this up later. Yeah, today we can. If you're waiting around, we're always around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for. So we're here uh, at Highlander Worldwide, the the official first day, I guess, today, and uh, we are. Continuing our interview with Joe Pearson. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Great. Hello, everybody. And Joe, uh, we talked a little bit about your work on uh, Search for Vengeance, the yes. Highlander movie uh, directed by Yoshiaki Kawajiri. And I think today we should talk about the movie you directed, uh, War of the Worlds, Goliath, in 3D. All right. Um, how did you come across this project, or, or how did you get involved initially? Well, I've been a lifelong science fiction fan and reader probably like a lot of your audience and the first science fiction book I read was War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. I read it one summer when I was laid up with a third second degree sunburn at my grandmother's house and there was a copy of War of the Worlds floating around so nine-year-old Jody read a pretty hard aggressive adult science fiction novel that was the first science fiction I had ever read it was a mind blower. That was my introduction to science fiction. And uh, back in the late 90s, I had an animation studio that was going full tilt called Epoch Inc. Animation. We just produced a series called uh, Captain Simeon and the Space Monkeys. Oh, I loved that show. Yeah. yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. That's yeah. cool, man. Yeah, I watched it. I actually wished it was on more. I would catch it on Sunday mornings yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. And I always wanted it to be on more. And the Space Monkeys. Captain Simeon and the Space Monkeys. So I remember that. Yeah, it was a really that show. It was a good show. The, the chief writer and creator was Gordon Bresick, who was one of the guys behind Pinky and the Brain. Oh, wow. That's so amazing. we used to joke that he would bring in all the uh, humor, and I would uh, add all the explosions and mayhem. <laughs> That's amazing. 
Yeah, so we had produced that, and we were getting ready to do a music video for Pearl Jam, and I had some downtime at that point, and I had a really top animation crew. We, we worked on Mummies Alive for Deke right. and a bunch of other projects, so I, my spare time, I thought we should develop some IPs of our own, and War of the Worlds was in the public domain. That means pretty much anybody could do it, mm -hmm. and I thought that's got a good, it's a good marquee, it's something I, I know and love, and I've always wondered, like, what would have happened after the first invasion? You know, you know, mankind would bury their 100 million dead, 200 million dead, dust themselves off, and rebuild the cities. But you know those bastards would be coming back. Right. <laughs> so it makes sense that man would retro-engineer the Martian tech. Basically, that, that was our first development, was a series development. We have a lot of really good early artwork on it, and I pitched it, didn't get anybody to pick it up, and kind of tabled it. And then I partnered with Kevin Eastman, the creator of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We formed a company called Heavy Metal Entertainment. Kevin owned the magazine and wrote a 100-page business plan to try to raise about $20 million to do like six direct-to-video teen adult animated films. That as a whole, I could write a book on what we went through with like eight different, nine different rounds of serious investors. At the end of the day, after six years and a bank running dry, we were about to give it up when I went to Japan to a film conference to pitch one of our projects, mm -hmm. Los Angeles. We didn't get that picked up, but I met a gentleman, Leon Tan, who's a Chinese Malaysian gentleman. We hit it off, and a year later, David had raised, uh, Leon had raised the money for War of the Worlds Goliath. And then we were off to the races. That's amazing. Um, it's a long answer to a short question. Yeah, but it's good information to have. And I mean, can you just tell us a little bit about, it's, it's post-invasion post from the original War of the Worlds story. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about what Goliath is about? Oh, sure. I, I said it in 1914. I, I was a history major before I changed over to art. And in 1914, was sadly a, a critical year in human history. It was the year in which Europe pretty much plunged into the most stupid, well, uh, the Iraq war was pretty fucking stupid too, but yeah. you know, let's be <laughs> honest. But this was equal, it was worse because it was all the European countries pretty much shooting themselves in the head and, and turning into a holocaust with no Nazis to defeat. There was no monster to defeat. It was the European powers pounding on their chests, the French, the British, the Russians, the Germans. So after seven years, you had a whole generation of young men killed in the most horrible way possible in trench warfare. So I, I thought, you know, that's like a key point in human history. What if the Martians had invaded in 1899, like in H.G. Wells' novel? You know, you could set up a story where in 1914, man's rebuilt and rearmed, and they're about to go at it again in World War I. It's great dramatic tension. You know, even with the sword of the Martians hanging over your head, you know, human nature is human nature, right? So we... I had that in my original treatment, and when I brought David Abramowitz on board from our relationship from Highlander Search for Vengeance, uh, David took that and really ran with it in, in the final script. Come and get it. So David Abramowitz 
wrote the script as well. We have some Highlander actors rounding out the voice cast for the film. Um, what was it like working with them? Well, that, that's a really good story. David's an accomplished Hollywood writer. He got a producer credit on this film and a fair amount of money for the script. And, and a lot of guys would have said, hey, thanks, kid. You know, thanks for the money and the work. I'll see you guys in three years at the wrap party when you finish up. But instead, he, he, he really wanted to stay involved and, and, and do something as a producer. So he suggested in, that maybe we could bring in the Highlander actors if we thought they would be a good fit. And Leon and I thought about it for about three seconds and went, yeah, that would be great. You know, how can we work them in? And, and then it was just, it was pretty natural, you know. We had Eric Wells, the young, earnest English captain, and, and Peter seemed to be a really good fit for that. Uh, Jim Burns was a magnificent Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, that's amazing. I, that's such good casting. Yeah, yeah it's really good casting. It, it's re and that, that was just a natural outcome of wanting to work with a Highlander crew. And we had the female interest, and, and Liz is a terrific actress and, and available. And then that left Adrian. And really, the only role left, but it was the one that seemed to fit, was, uh, was uh, Patrick O'Brien, the uh, uh, Irish mechanic on the Goliath battle machine, and also a secret member of the Irish Revolution. And, and Adrian, you know, to his credit, Adrian didn't feel like he was being given a second string position or didn't act like that. He jumped in on it with both feet. You know, like I mentioned with David, when, Ad when Adrian came in, he had worked out a whole backstory for his character, and he said he really wanted to use like a full-on Southern Irish brogue and really lay on the Blarney when he's just being like one of the crew and one of the guys, you know. But then when he was with his brother, he would go full-on, you know, stone-cold Northern Ireland, hardcore IRA, you know, in the accent. And it That's worked really well. That's awesome. Uh, so Adrian's kind of flexing his muscles, uh, but in animation. Um, yeah, and let's be honest, Patrick was an over-muscled character, so yeah. <laughs> it worked out well. So it's literally and vocally, if that makes sense. What, what about um, animation uh, interests you? I mean, I'm a big animation fan, but like, to you, what, what got you interested in animation, and what, what makes an animated film different from a live-action film? Aside from the obvious, I guess. <laughs> that one is drawn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the, the big there's a few differences. In animation, you can create terrific scale for a modest budget. I mean, our budget on War of the Worlds Goliath was about one hundredth of the budget of, say, uh, Transformers or Pacific Rim. Right. You know, yeah. or a Pixar or Disney animated film, right? We could have made a hundred War of the Worlds for the cost of a Pixar film, uh, for better or worse, you know? Right. <laughs> Um, but we could create vast scale, you know, by in animation uh, and actually doing using a lot of CG in War of the Worlds. We were able to repurpose a lot of animation for various scenes with the CG models. The other big difference is in animation, everything has to be planned out completely in advance. And a lot of live action films, if you look at the Avengers movies or Transformers, mm -hmm. Those are almost animated films, right? You know, with all the heavy CG and special effects, like the Hulk running around. Yeah, yeah, it's all I, cartoon. Like, over half of those films is is full on animation, and and like those films in, in traditional full animation, you have to storyboard and scene plan every shot in advance, and you you edit that together in your storyboard, and then you animate it, and you don't have a lot of room for 
editing afterwards. In most live action films, you'll have two, three, four cameras running. And at the end of the film, it's really assembled and reassembled and reassembled again in the editing room. In animation, you can't, you can't really do that. Although, in War of the Worlds, we did a lot of creative editing. Uh, there were a couple of sequences that I felt the staging off th that came in off the storyboard was not quite there, so, especially in that first big battle. We went in and, and cut a lot of, did a lot of cut arounds and changes on that. But basically, the film's 90% of what we storyboarded at the very beginning. It's interesting, like you mentioned scale and animation, and you can kind of do things for relatively cheaper than in a live action film. I feel like animation is almost a perfect medium to tell Highlander stories. Um, I mean, you don't have any constraints for a flashback aside from, I guess, what your artists can draw. Um, uh, I, I guess I, more a statement than a question, but I, I would like to see more Highlander animation. I think I it's would too. a perfect I, medium for it. I, I think it's a, an amazing medium. And you could see that in, in Search for Vengeance. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that film, the real budget on that, I would say, was probably about $5 million. And, you know, the scale with the destroyed New York City, all of the flashbacks, you couldn't make that in live action for under $30 million, $40 million, No, absolutely you know? not. And you have, like, the, the intense futuristic-type designs coupled with, you know, like, ancient... Was it Greece or, or Rome? Yeah, we had Rome. We had uh, Celtic Britain. Yeah. We had the Battle of Britain over Coventry, one of my favorite scenes. Uh, Why have you come here? Answer me. Yeah. Crucified Moya. Moya. What a pity to waste such beauty. Yeah, we had a number of flashbacks. Yeah, it's that's the beauty of animation. Uh, do you do you have a favorite animator or, or animated film, or perhaps a favorite anime film? Oh yeah, I, I, it's an easy answer. I mean, Hayao Miyazaki is is arguably one of the greatest directors in the world. Yes. In animation or live action, I think he's up there, at least on a level with uh, Spielberg and Ridley Scott and those guys. He, Absolutely. He gets a lot of credit for his animation work, but just as a filmmaker and director, he's, you know, he has, what, 10 films to his credit? Yeah, I, around that. Yeah, Absolutely. and, and yeah. maybe only, in my opinion, only one or two of those films is less than perfect. I'd agree. And that's a better track record than uh, Ridley Scott, frankly. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I put Blade Runner and uh, Nausicaa on the top of the list for best science fiction films of all time. Yeah, I, I pretty much look at them both at about the same level. Nausicaa of the Valley of Wind, if you haven't seen it, it's really good. The comic's really good, too, which yeah. I did. Um, that's amazing. My favorite Miyazaki movie is Castle of Cagliostro, uh, and I just had the chance to see that on the big screen. Oh, yeah, Fathom was doing yeah. those releases. Yeah, I took off of work screen. to see that, so it was really good. It was really fun. Yeah, Lupin the Third. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was that's his first character. feature. Yeah, yeah. They had a weird intro with John Lasseter, though, and it was way too long. And I was yeah. just like, I just want to watch the movie. <laughs> well, it's nice that John Lasseter goes out of his way to give the master proper credit. That's true. You know? That's very true. And they're, like, supposed to be friends or something like that. Anyway, uh, are there any projects you're working on now, um, animation or, or short film or otherwise? 
Yeah, my, my company in Malaysia, I had uh, 12 developed IPs, intellectual properties, with uh, ranging from 100-page uh, graphic novels and scripts to just uh, story concepts and some designs. And those were all parked in my Malaysian company, Tripod, that we set up to do mm -hmm. War of the Worlds. Those have reverted back to me now after seven years, and, and I've been prepping them and, and looking for production partners to take them out. I've, it's a wide slate of projects from uh, kind of a Chicano hunter of monsters, La Cruz, kind of like if you picture Blade mixed with like an anime where one of those guys has to avoid beasting out, you know, under mm -hmm. stress. You know, it, it's kind of creating a... a, a a tormented hunter of monsters in Chicano, L.A. That's that sounds great. Yeah, I, I would love to do that. I've got one called the 24-Hour Man, set in Venice Beach, in a post-nuclear Venice Beach, with which is sort of like a Hong Kong cyberpunk sword and sorcery movie. Uh, I've got a, a lot of I've got kids projects, I, I've, but uh, the the project that's kind of obsessed me more recently, and I have almost no development on it now. But I'm thinking of, of doing a, launching a Kickstarter next year. Is uh, it's called John the Revelator, and it's the story of, of John Brown, the abolitionist. And, and if you don't know John Brown's story, before the Civil War, he was one of the more vocal and violent anti-slavery uh, fighters in the country. There's uh, pictures of him where he looks like Charlton Heston from the Ten Commandments, with this huge white beard and. And it's like William Defoe grizzled face and a shotgun. And uh, he literally, uh, he and his like eight sons and his followers uh, waged war against uh, slavery in this country. They went, rode into Kansas and fought pitched battles with pro-slavery groups that were trying to turn the state into a slave state. He actually rescued a band of slaves. And this is not a story most people know, but my research uncovered this. He took a whole band of like 20 or 30 slaves out of the south, 1,500 miles up to Canada, and fighting off southern slave militias, fighting off federal troops, you know, and he got them across the border to freedom. And then finally he led a raid on Harper's Ferry in Virginia with the intent of, of seizing the government arsenal with his followers and, and handing out those guns to slaves in the south. And his plan was to take to the hills with this army of armed-up escaped slaves and basically do a Spartacus, right? Do a rolling rebellion through the South. That failed, and he was hung for his efforts, but a lot of people think he was the spark that lit the match that started the Civil War. That is an amazing story. Do you envision that That's as... a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> do you envision this as a movie or like a miniseries or... Well, if we do a Kickstarter, I'm going to develop it uh, a multi-level across-the-board property. I've, I've been working with Adam Whitlich. He wrote this, the book novelization of War of the Worlds. Okay. So we would write a novel. We would write a screenplay. If we raise enough money, I'll ask David to co-write it with me. I think David could bring a lot of the kind of gravitas to and the period feeling of, of people because John Brown was really eloquent. His speeches are, are phenomenal. You know, and, and then we'll do a 100-page uh, graphic novel, and ideally, if we can raise enough, we will do we'll do a full series bible as well. And then I want to do at least a, a three-minute animated proof of concept. That sounds amazing, and I think that's a story maybe a lot of our listeners might not know about. So, no, it's not a science fiction story, but it is one of the great American 
true stories. And I see it in my head as something Kawajiri would do if he was doing kind of an intense spaghetti western. Yeah. You know? I mean, I see Ninja Scroll, that kind of color palette and that kind of mm -hmm. design and, and approach, right? But, but with this very uh, strong western theme to it. Yeah, and it could, it could, like, that movie really goes on a clip with Jubei, like, kind of working his way through the, the devils of Kimon. So I could, I could see, you know, John Brown working his way through this, that 1,200-mile uh, stretch. That could be, like, a fascinating yeah. piece of action. Yeah, well, I mean, and John Brown is uh, such an interesting man. I mean, was he, today, when you have, it, it, and it's issues like, Gun violence is horrible, and 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 yet John Brown was a man who, who lived and died by the gun. You know, he but he did it to try to free an entire race of people. You know, so was he a prophet, or was he a terrorist, or was he a madman, or was he you know ahead of his time? You know, uh, maybe he was all of that. You know, he's very American. It's a very American story, and. What the hell if we get the funds? I, I think I know a certain Canadian blues man who would do a great John Brown voice. Oh, who could you that know? be? Who could that be? <laughs> and I'm sure he probably has a, a, a Scottish, act, you know, a sidekick who came over, a Scottish immigrant who like joins the band, and you know, there's a, there's room for you know a fair amount of actors there. Let's yeah. see what happens. Possibly some familiar faces. <laughs> And Joe, uh, why don't you tell us about the upcoming book release you have? Yeah, I'm very excited about this. Uh, right about the time we did the War of the Worlds development, I got a call from Todd McFarlane. And Eddie Vedder had approached him from Pearl Jam uh, because he loved the animated Spawn and he wanted to do a music video. He, Pearl Jam had not done a video for six, seven years. Wow. And yeah. Eddie literally did not want to be, as he put it, a, a you know, dancing, singing monkey, <laughs> some director's thing in a warehouse, right? So yeah. they wanted to do an animated version of one of his songs. It was called Do the Evolution. So he went to Todd, but Todd's not an animator. He, he produced Spawn, but it was all done at HBO. And a director there had recommended myself and my studio to them. So basically, we had 12 weeks to do a four-minute animated video Yikes. For a Pearl Jam song, yeah, it was it was insane, and and there were a lot of cooks. There was Sony, there was a band, there was a band's management, there was Todd McFarlane, and there was MTV. And I realized early on that we were going to crash and burn unless we put together a really good team. And and fortunately, my my best friend at the time was Kevin Altieri, and Kevin was I think the best of the Batman the animated series directors. He had just finished an independent film called Gen 13. Oh, yeah. Which I, I, most people haven't seen or heard because Disney bought it from Wildstorm and then buried it. But it, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's better than most of the Warner animated mm -hmm. superhero films. It's based off of the uh, Wildstorm. Right. Is it a Jim Lee comic? Yeah. 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 And Kevin basically did a Miyazaki on it. He wrote it. He directed it. He storyboarded most of it. And, and Kevin, like myself, was a history nut. And I knew that he... The problem with this video was if we tried to sit down and really, really go take the slow, thoughtful road on this, we were going to crash and burn. We didn't have the time. And there's like a million roads you can go. And I knew that with Kevin and my assistant and the assistants in the writing, that Kevin would just take it and ramrod a, a concept through. So we yeah. had a really top team of artists from left over from the Space Monkeys crew. Yeah. And uh, we had two good studios in Korea that we split the actual animation job with. 
And we had Terry Fitzgerald, who was Todd McFarlane's uh, compadre, literally traveling with the band, taking Eddie storyboards at night after shows wow. to get a, immediate approval and running interference for us. And we got it done in 12 weeks. We got nominated for a Grammy Award. The videos had at least 40 million hits on YouTube. And uh, it's maybe the thing I'm most proud of as a creator and, and animator is that we were able to, to make a really strong statement about history and, and politics and do it in animation. So this book coming out at the end of the year is going to be a 130-page large-size art book from IDW Publishing in San Diego. Uh, we just got Eddie to sign off on my text. It has a long interview with Kevin, the director. It's got input from Terry about his traveling with the band. And it's just got all of the storyboards and pre-production art that we did. And the design team at IDW is doing something I've never seen in an art of book before. It looks like production flats, like taped onto boards and stuff. Everything is at angled and really deconstructed and, and a really wild mix of type and, and image. I think uh, Pearl Jam fans, animation fans, are really going to like it, and it is my first book, so I'm very proud of it. IDW is a great publisher. They they publish beautiful books. Like they do all the artist editions for yeah. comic books, which are these oversized yeah. books that basically just reproduce the comic art. So yeah, you can the see black and white, right. art, like full size. It's it's gorgeous. So this this is going to have to be a beautiful book because yeah. they do a great job. So yeah, look out for that. They're very yeah. excited, and and I, I have another uh, Facebook group on uh, called Do the Evolution where we're posting stuff from the upcoming book and the reaction from the Pearl Jam fans has been terrific. It's, it's interesting, the Pearl Jam fan community in a weird way reminds me of the Highlander community, you know, it's like a, a really supportive, loving group of people that go out of their way to be good to each other and, and encourage each other because, you know, they have a love, a mutual love of, of an artist and creator. So. That's great. Pearl Jam was my second concert after Weird Al Yankovic. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did. I did the opening for the Weird Al CBS Kids Show. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I used to watch that all the time. I love that show. Weird Al was also my first concert. That's really? Yeah. It was on Amazing. one season, right? Yeah, one season. Yeah. The, was it's just called the Weird Al Show, right? Yeah. The yeah. first 20 seconds, it's like traditional animation. Right. Is we did at my yeah, studio. The yeah, the hamster. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> I remember small that now. World. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Oh, this is a story about a guy named Al, and he lived in a sewer with his hamster pal. But the sanitation workers really didn't approve, so he packed up his accordion and had to move to a city in Ohio where he lived in a tree. And he worked in a nasal decongestant factory, and he played on the company bowling team. And every single night he had a fringe recurring dream, where he was wearing leader hose and a vat of sour cream. But that's really not important to the story. So where, where can we look for your future projects or find you online? Well, the best place to find me online would be on the War of the Worlds Goliath Facebook group. All right. Um, I'm, and, and if you have a chance to see the film, I'm always posting behind-the-scenes artwork and images and, and sharing stuff from the production. So that, that would be the, that's probably where I'll start the buzz for the Kickstarter if we get to that point. Great. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, Joe, thank you very much for talking with us today. Pleasure. Oh, it's a pleasure meeting all of you guys. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Next week, the Rewatchers are going to be discussing the animated reunion of many Highlander alums in Joe Pearson's animated feature, War of the Worlds Goliath. See you next week. Keep on rewatching. watching